Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9. I will be reading Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he did not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Let's pray. Father, I need the powerful grace of the Holy Spirit to cause me, to allow me, and to help me say what is in this text of Scripture. And we all covet and yearn for the grace that gives our hearts the ability to hear and to be moved and to be worked on by these words of Jesus. So do this to the glory of His great name and in and unto the sanctification of our lives. Amen. I am going to open up with an extended quote from author Kent Hughes, just particularly because I find it to be penetratingly relevant to the way that our text this morning addresses every one of us in here. He says, Charles Colson writes, I vividly recall, or excuse me, I vividly recall a glimpse from my White House days, one brisk December night as I accompanied the President from the Oval Office in the West Wing of the White House to the residence. Mr. Nixon was musing about what people wanted in their leaders. He slowed a moment looking into the distance across the south lawn, and said, the people really want a leader a little bigger than themselves. Don't they, Chuck? I agreed. Nixon goes on. I mean, someone like de Gaulle. There's a certain aloofness 
a power that's exuded by great men that people feel they want to follow. That, of course, was before Colson's humbling at Watergate and his subsequent encounter with Christ. Because Colson goes on to write, Jesus Christ exhibited none of this self-conscious aloofness. He served others first. He spoke to those to whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards. A borrowed manger in a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. Kings and presidents and prime ministers surround themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing the doors open, and stand at attention as they wait for the great to pass. Jesus said that He Himself stands at the door and knocks, patiently waiting to enter our lives. Hughes goes on to write, Colson is absolutely right. True greatness is the antithesis of pride and exclusivity. Yet many churchgoers, and indeed many Christians, do not know this, as evidenced by the strutting leaders they choose to follow. And even more, the pride and narrowness that characterizes their own lives and to which they actually aspire. Today, in some quarters of organized Christianity, the church simply does not believe Jesus' words. Why are things so upside down? Consider the difference between dogs and cats. The master pets a dog, and the dog wags its tail and thinks, He must be God. The master pets the cat, And the cat purrs, shuts its eyes and thinks to itself, I must be God. After God has graciously reached down to us, there is a perverse human tendency to think like a cat. Think about it. As Christians, we begin well as humble, needy sinners who receive the free grace and the mercy of God. Like the dog, God was everything to us and we gladly worshipped Him. But as time went by, the regrettable cat pathology began to shrink the recognition of grace in our hearts. Hmm. Christian life produces some positive changes. We become kinder people. Our language changes. And destructive habits disappear. But those changes can become an unwitting source of pride. We may not think, I must be God. But we do silently imagine I must be pretty good. We become proud of our apparent sanctification. 
our knowledge of the Bible and of theology, our evangelical routines. After all, we understand the mysteries of grace while the unregenerate adults around us have no clue. We become proud of our spirituality. End quote. You still there in Luke? Let's look at the mirror of verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, now, as you've been following along week by week with Luke, the actual context of this makes that statement all the more absurd. Remember, Jesus just said, look at verse 44, He just said to the twelve, this is the twelve apostles, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus just said, I'm headed to Jerusalem. Not to be praised, but to be rejected and to be killed. It is stunning. What, what, what was going on with them when they heard this? I think it's something like this. And the text does bear it out. Okay. Jesus, alright. And, and, and they so much didn't get a clue what that really meant. The text lets us know. It's just out of their mind and I ain't gonna, no, I'm not going there with Jesus. And then real soon after it, these guys are bickering about which one of them, of the twelve, is the greatest disciple. Think about it. As we've been going all the way through Luke, we've seen it. Here's a synopsis. They, like you, were clearly undeserving sinners. You remember Jesus on the beach there, coming out of the boat, <laughs> net full of fish. He fell down and said... Leave me, Jesus, because I am a sinful man. And Jesus didn't debate with him. He says, yeah, I got that, Peter. Follow me. He, he grabbed the tax collector, the stinking, hated, sinful tax collector, Matthew, and the others. Follow me. And then from many, many, many disciples then, Jesus prayed and He chose from them twelve and trained them and gave them even private teaching during His ministry now for the last year and a half to two years. He gifted them and sent them out to preach. And evidently what happens is now Peter, leave me Jesus, I'm sinful, has begun to think like a cat. Wow. I, we, twelve, must be pretty great. We're really something. I mean, look at our elite position with Jesus. Can you believe these idiots? Okay, right here, my tongue is in my cheek. 
When people say those kind of things to me, can you believe so-and-so did something? I'm thinking, yes. I can believe it. Because what we see here is something that is very familiar to all of us in this room. It's the battle that we in our Christian lives have to, have to constantly be aware of and fight. Jesus just said to these guys, I'm going to Jerusalem for you to serve you. This is We know now on this side of the cross, the gospel. And what he did, they weren't getting it. That's why they acted the way they do. That's why we act the way we do when we don't, in that moment, get the gospel. You guys are thinking, look at that. I'm whittled down from hundreds to one of the twelve. And now they've got to fight and see where do they stand among the twelve when the kingdom of God comes in glory. They're really clueless at this point. See, putting it all together, remember the context of what had happened. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John up to the mountain where he was transfigured. That unique experience. Moses and Elijah appeared, remember? And he left the nine other guys down below where they were unable to cast the demon out of the boy. Hmm. Who knows? What is Peter and James John thinking when they came down and saw that commotion we saw last week? Those other nine guys saw and experienced what we did on the mountain. They wouldn't have had any problem casting out this demon. Look at us. Or maybe it slipped around. The jealousy from some of these other guys. Why in the world did Jesus take big mouth Peter up the mountain? Why the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, these guys that blow their tops so easily? I don't have that problem. And they come down the mountain and they are fighting, arguing, giving their reasons why they're better than the other. Okay? Now, listen to Jesus' response in verses 47 and 48. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to the twelve, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Okay. These guys, they're bickering about who's the greatest. And then, Jesus responds. Now, first, note, His response is not, don't pursue being great. It's not what His response is. His response is, look, you shouldn't pursue being great. You should just aspire to nothing. Just 
Try to make your life be a life that is absolutely insignificant and unhelpful to other people. Live so that at your funeral, people will really struggle to say something good about you. That's not his counsel here. Notice the logic at the end of verse 48 first. So he uses the illustration with a child. And then you see the word for, meaning because... He says, because he who is least among you all is the one who's great. It seems like it's okay to be great in a particular way here. He recognizes the human yearning for significance, for Greatness in that sense. In other words, to count that you lived. He recognizes that because He created it. But He is correcting how the disciples' drive for greatness was perverted and distorted by sin. So in essence, Jesus is saying to him, get off this pathway of self-exaltation, self-worship, and get on the true path of greatness. That's what he's saying. Which is beautiful to God. Jesus never comes against that desire to be God-centeredly significant or great. In that sense. The point is, the fall of man. And we are all plunged into and born into sin at the core of our being. That fall has corrupted this longing for greatness into something at the essence of sin. It's corrupted the longing for biblical God-centered greatness into the longing to want to be known as great. To want to be, and Jesus uses the comparative, to want to be greater than others you compare with. And that is not the greatness that God created man for. And that is the stench in the air of the conversation and argument the twelve apostles are having with one another. The joy of true God-centered greatness has been perverted by our sin. By our desire to want to be praised for our ministry, our actions, our things that we do. This last week on, on the internet, I ran across a, uh, an article that gets at the subtlety of what this text, I think, is about. It, and, and though this is going to use people like me in the pastorate and in ministry, it, it affirms or reveals and deals with everybody in raising children, in teaching Sunday school, in helping someone across. It, it deals with everything. So, listen. He 
That is, Eric McDeedy writes, What's the difference between someone who wants to be a great preacher and someone who wants to preach great? It's a good question. He says, I'm sure there's lots of differences, but one thing that comes to mind is hubris. The desire to be a great preacher is a desire for a reputation or popularity. On the other hand, the desire to preach well will reside in the heart of any pastor who wants his congregation to be helped by God's Word. And oh, could that be subtle. He goes on, I for one go back and forth between the two. Sometimes I want the pulpit to assist my, me professionally. Other times, by God's grace, I want the pulpit to spiritually help God's people. Acknowledging our desires, questioning them, and praying that they may be purified is an essential habit for every pastor to cultivate. And every Christian. And so Jesus says, For he who is least among you all, that one is great. The one who is great is not based upon wanting to be greater than the other person. Because he says, actually, you, you, here's comparison. Compare in your minds, down here on earth, in your home, amongst your friends, amongst the local church. Did you compare? Oh, okay, the least. Don't you get it? The least. You twelve apostles. You got it all worked out? You got some numbers, one through twelve for me? Give me the least. That one is great. Everybody who is connected to me, received in my name, is great. Drop the comparisons. It's not a competition. That's what Jesus is telling the guys. True greatness is found in caring for others. Particularly lowly others. Okay, let's get the flow of all Jesus' words. Now, I concentrated just on his last sentence, okay? First, because that's the argument. So let's get the flow. He has said here, because of the last part of verse 48, in other words, because of this truth, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Therefore, he uses an illustration to illustrate it. Therefore, he took a child and put him by his side and said to the twelve, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. So there's Jesus. You've got to picture it. He's with the twelve. If he's probably in a living room, a home or something, he's with the twelve and there's a child around and he gets the child and he sits the child down by himself and he's going to speak. But we've we got to stop for a moment because we've got to understand the culture of what that meant before he speaks that is unlike our culture today. Okay? For Jewish men, you've got you to understand this. In first century Judaism, children under 12 were not allowed to be taught the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. Moses. Children were considered, for men who want to move up in life, move up in the estimation of others, a waste of time. There's only so much time in the day, and how are you going to spend it and move up? In people's estimations, was important. If you spend a lot of time with children, men, you're not going to get ahead. The Talmud, Jewish writings that were written down later about the oral traditions, particularly in the first century. The Talmud says to men, you Jewish religious men, you want to move up in your community, you want to be known as greater and greater in how to spend your time. He says, okay, this is what you don't do. Okay, this is where it's going to go. Quote, morning sleep... Okay, that's not a good thing. Wake up, right? And get on with the day. But morning sleep, or midday wine, or chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of the common people assemble, all those things destroy a man. Okay, so the twelve, like most of their peers, thought that greatness was determined by who you know. And who knows you? And how many know you? I mean, i got to think maybe a little bit of this. Can you imagine the context? Philip, how great are you? Two days ago, I was hanging out with Moses and Elijah. What were you doing, Philip? Jesus says, you see this child whom many in our culture consider the least. He is great. Got to feel it. He is great because he is received in the name of Jesus. Everyone Related to me, Jesus says, is great. So, you got the kid. That's what he's doing with these guys. Here's Jesus. By implication, he is saying to them, I am exhibit A. This eight-year-old boy, whatever age he was, is exhibit B. Got to feel it. Exhibit A to the twelve. They're saying, yes, you, Jesus, are everything to us. You got it. Exhibit B, the boy, is nothing to us. And Jesus says to them, he who receives what you consider to be is nothing, receives me. Exhibit A. 
Not only me, you receive my Father. The one who sent me. His point is those who receive, those who welcome, those who pay attention to the nobodies in life, in culture, in church, in family. In the name of Jesus. Because of, in connection to your relationship with Jesus and being saved in the Gospel. When you do that, they those ones are great. They are the ones who show they receive me. They're related to me. If you think you're above serving children, guys, or all of us, or the elderly, or the socially awkward, or the sick, and thinking, I'm better than that kind of ministry to others, then it may be that in that refusal, you're manifesting your heart toward Jesus. Whoever receives this child, this nobody, in my name, receives me. Okay, you see this? Got to get the picture. These guys are jockeying for position of supremacy over one another and to be known as such. Who do you know? What are your arguments? Okay, Peter, good arguments. I can beat those arguments. Look at these qualifications of my giftings. How many people read your Twitters? And so Jesus purposely uses a nobody in their culture. A child. Guys, they know. There's no ladder climbing There's no prestige gaining in wasting time with a child. Uh, Even in our society, we know. You want to move up in people's estimations. You want your name to be out there. You want to be known as a great Christian. Child's not the way to go. Children, for some reason, do not have the knack to give stump speeches of how great you are, even though you're the ones that keep them alive. Do they, moms? So he uses a child. Loving and receiving and serving children or any others in this church or in society, particularly those that will not get you known or recognized, is solid proof of whether you are truly great. That that, that you are one of those who in serving, in receiving others this way, when no one else knows about it, 
is a sign that, oh, you receive Jesus. You receive Him daily, more and more, in your life. So as we read this, don't misread it and think that somehow Jesus is talking about works, salvation, or something. His point is not this. You want to be saved? You want to find Jesus? Well, then just be nice to children. That's not what he says. Notice the phrase, in my name you receive. He turns the whole discussion away from the value, and we can talk about the value of every human being made in God's image. We can talk about the value of that child, but he turns the whole discussion away from the value of the child and he turns it back on God. The value of God. That is what is so different about Jesus and the Bible from everything else in the world all the way through it. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And you receive me, you receive the one who sent it's one thing to serve. It's others. It's one thing to receive children, to help the lonely, to quietly give your time to an elderly person. It's another thing to do it because of Jesus. Because of Jesus' name. Serving and ministering to other kids or to little Michael from Bolivia, without the Gospel, without because of Jesus' name that drives us to meet those needs. These children of ours need to be taught this. To just do that, but not particularly in the name of Jesus. That would not be fulfilling Jesus' words in our text. So, as we hear the call of Jesus to us today, to not pursue to be known is great, but instead to serve in all the little things, in the little peoples of life. As we do that, don't miss it, we are to do it with the longing to experience more of Jesus in it. Why else would He put a carrot before us? Do you want to receive Me in your actions? If He didn't mean for us to go, of course, therefore receive this child. Did you see that? It's there, right? You serve a child or the elderly or a social outcast or the sick. You do it best when you do it because your joy is not first in the child, in the social outcast, but your joy is first in Jesus. Vertically. All right.
Let me just wrap up this point of the sermon so you don't think I'm wrapping up and summarize by rewording this text so far to get the flow of what I've been trying to show. Jesus is saying, guys, if you want to live in true greatness, be least and receive and help and serve the least among you. Because if you receive the least like a child in my name, you receive me and God the Father. In other words, when I call you guys to love others and serve others and minister to others, I am not calling you to some horrific self-sacrifice. I'm calling you to stop the sinful pursuit of man's praise and start truly pursuing God. Bye. Stop trying to receive approval and adulation in your Christian service. And start receiving God in your ministry of preaching, teaching children, nursery, working. Ladies who do this, when you write and encourage and minister to other women by writing cards, pursue God when you serve meals to help a brother or sister. That's what He's telling all of us. Jesus is saying to every person who's been born again, who belong to Him from from Billy Graham to mega church pastors to missionaries to nursery workers to homeschool moms to Sunday school teachers to those who set up and take down a church to he's saying to the apostle Peter and to the apostle Paul the measure of true greatness is to what degree daily you are putting to death the impulse of self-exaltation in whatever you do. And that is an ongoing Christian battle. By definition, if you're a Christian. We, we live in an age of Technology, which has wonderful positive things about it and always negative, like everything in this world. The positive is the abundance and availability of gospel and preaching and teaching and video and anything you can get around the world, anywhere you can get electricity and hit a satellite. The negativity of it is the same thing they dealt with in the first century, in First Corinthians. This guy's great compared to this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And if you know your Bible, 1 Corinthians, no different. You don't need an internet to do it. It's just, it's just so more ubiquitous today. Paul said this. I would love to read the couple chapters of 1 Corinthians when they're bickering over which preacher of theirs is better. 
But just for a summary, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And, and, and here's the point. Uh, concerning all that, uh, your own life and the way you look at others' life. You just don't know. And this is what Paul's going to say. Be careful about judging greatness or non-greatness. You don't. No. Jesus tells us something about greatness here. Let's keep that in mind. Paul writes, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment, contextually, about who's great and who's not, before the time, before the Lord comes. Because the Lord will come and He will bring to light the things hidden. That's scary. He will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. And He will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Wow. Okay. So just real quickly. Jesus' words, as you look at the text here, were evidently very penetrating and cutting to the twelve and particularly to the Apostle John. Because the next thing we read, start with verse 49. John answered, it seems like he felt a little convicted. Master. Because remember when they were sent out two by twos and they were preaching, Jesus went, so they had all kinds of experiences apart from Jesus. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Don't stop him. The one who is not against you is for you. So, look, apparently, got to get it. It's connected. These guys, okay, we're the 12. We know that. We know we're all greater than everyone else. And we've got to figure out who's greater here. And they're out in ministry. And someone else is trying to help another human being. And they get offended. Because they're not in our leadership team. Jesus says, you just totally miss it. Quit making it about you! Is what he's saying. These guys are already wrestling over which one of the twelve is the greatest. God forbid you add the 13th and 14th. they got to get this guy stopped. It's a mirror. <laughs> Isn't it? This is a call for all of us believers, as we talked about last week, to daily fight the fight of faith. And here, particularly against our pride that so easily wells up and says, I speak from experience, praise me! How do you fight? You constantly, in your vertical relationship with Christ, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. Beg the Lord to burn away the desire to 
be recognized for the great servant of the Lord in whatever area that you are. See, when the temptation rises up of, wow, that felt good. Did you see that, brother? That sister kind of take a crash? Ooh. Feels a little good because I know I'm better than that. When that comes up, go something like this. Joe, you think you're so good, so great, because you have avoided that pitfall? Okay, Joe, are you ready to receive from God the reward of your autonomous greatness for, for your gifts in one area that someone else might not have? Are you, you ready for that? Go ahead and receive what you have earned. You have earned, Joe, only eternal, holy wrath, justly to fall upon you. Oh, we need to constantly kill our pride with the gospel. The context of this, I didn't read the text, but Luke let it be known clear. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to be rejected and to be killed. And it basically says they didn't have a clue what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him. Therefore, pride rises up. And the solution in our lives, and it will rise up, is continue in your prayer life to be clear on what Christ has done and why He had to do it for you. And that reality will never change for all eternity. And in eternity, we will know it more clearly and love it more thoroughly. So in our daily dealing with the sin of pride, it is a dealing with it at the heart level, which means examining our motives for why we are doing such and such, this or that. Why do I serve or do or participate in this activity, in this ministry or some other? Is it out of love? For Jesus, overflowing? Is it stemming from an obedience, a joy that springs from faith in His promises? Does it spring from Galatians 5 6? From faith, a vertical relationship, faith working itself out. In love, helping others. Is it because, here's the question in our lives, that is, in whatever you're doing, in receiving a child, is it because in setting up church on Sunday morning, in preaching a sermon, 
in teaching kids, in praying for a hurting brother or sister, in visiting a lonely person. Now, just add 10 million other things. Is it because it's an overflow of joy in Jesus? No, you stop. Well, I'm not joyful now. Okay, got to get this. You got to get the text. Or is it because of my pursuit of joy in Jesus with the biblical goal of experiencing more of Jesus, receiving Jesus in my ministry or service? To the other person. Here's a good question. In the daily fight of faith. To ask yourself. What happens. If I do not receive the recognition from others. That I think I deserve. Do I get my feelings hurt. And just quit. That told us why we might have done that then, didn't it? Didn't pay off. Trust me. If I if I were to go out and to work for someone in labor with a contract, you pay me so much. And I don't get paid, I'm not going back. Are my feelings hurt because I wasn't recognized? Or do I grow jealous at others because they are recognized for that ministry? Do I truly rejoice with the success of others because the name of Jesus, one way or the other, is glorified? He's not with our band. I'll tell you, a big one goes on all the time. You've got to be really careful, guys. Boy, I think people really got ministered to that guy. Even, boy, tens of thousands of people because of the internet. Look at that. But you know what? He's got his doctrine wrong on this, not central doctrine about the cross, about the atonement, about who God is. No, those are all right. But we disagree on some other things and then we put down the effect of the way Jesus has used that person. As I close, here, here's a great text. As last week I gave lots of text on fighting the fight of faith against differing states of unbelief in God. Here's one. As pride rises up, you feel yourself, yep, I'm better than that. that, that. Oh, I feel pretty good amongst this group. Paul writes, What do you have? that you did not receive as a gift. If then you received it as a gift, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So let us go on every day pursuing Jesus, pursuing the Father, how? In all that we do in loving and serving and ministering with our various and particular giftings that have been given to us freely and we have nothing 
to boast about. We are only stewards of it for Jesus' sake. And since all of our differing abilities and giftings come from Him, think, this is how you fight, as you sit alone that morning, oh, the Holy Spirit will help you break it. Think about how ridiculous you are at that moment when we're puffed up over against another. Let's come. Oh Lord, we are a desperate people and, and You know that. And You have been so gloriously merciful in Your sovereignty to have these apostles bicker with one another so that the Gospel writers could record it for us. So that You would use even this week for every person in here that mirror in their alone time with You. And Lord, we stand upon nothing in us but the sheer absolute foundation that You mercifully and graciously are working this battle against arrogance and pride. You are doing that in our lives and You have started a good work by bringing us to You and You will complete it unto the day of Your second coming. To Your glory, Lord. And now may we, by Your Spirit, Meditate upon these words that you have spoken, Lord Jesus, even as we are singing our hearts out to you.